Hey everybody, welcome to the Sporting Dog Talk podcast. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today's episode is brought to you by Lucky Duck. This is a company that won me over with their lightweight and bomb-proof Lucky Kennel, but their offerings don't stop there. If you love to duck hunt with your dog, maybe a predator hunting this winter, Lucky Duck has a whole lineup of decoys, of predator hunting products, all kinds of good stuff. They're blinds as well, waterfowl blinds. Go check them out at LuckyDuck.com. If you like what you see, use the code LUCKY10 and they're going to give you 10% off of your order. This episode is also brought to you by Purina. Whether you're in the market for wet food, dry food, kibble formulated specifically for a puppy or maybe a senior dog, or you're running a hard charger that needs the protein and fat offered in ProPlan Sport, Purina has you covered. I feed my lab Pro Plan Sport Chicken and Rice 3020 for a ton of reasons, but the main one is that it gives her the energy she needs to hunt all day and the support she needs for her joints and her immune system. Lastly, this episode is brought to you by Canine Athlete. If you have an aging dog like I do, still gets after the roosters or other game birds and still trains hard, you might want to check out New Dog, a three-in-one supplement that helps accelerate recovery, reduce pain, and give your dog a quality of life boost. They've also got the new Canine Pro Daily Probiotic for digestive and immune health. Taking care of your dog's gut microbiome with the right probiotic can help them maintain a healthy body weight, promote immune system strength, and keep their digestive system working the way it's supposed to. Go to canineathlete.com, and that's letter K, number nine, athlete.com. Use the code SDT20, and they are going to give you 20% off your first order. My guest today is George Hickox. George is a very well-known dog trainer who's trained some of the best field trial dogs in the world and always has such good information. In this in this episode, we had a little audio trouble, but I think we got it all fixed and pieced together correctly. But George just laid out a case for you know, live bird introduction, how you should handle six-month-old dogs, and just a ton of good information on developing a dog correctly. George always has such great information. As always... Thank you so much for listening. There's a bunch of dog podcasts out there. There's a bunch of different platforms competing for your time. So we really appreciate it that you listen to Sporting Dog Talk every week. So thank you for that. Come here, bear. I'm dead, bear. I'm dead. That dog is family. Do something with a dog. It, it improves your overall quality of life. Good girl. George, welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad to be back again. Thanks. We are we're excited to have you back. I haven't I haven't looked at the the last time that you were on here, but I know for a while your podcast uh, just looking at the uh, the analytics on what what we had done the last time, you actually had over 100% consumption on the episode you did, which means people were listening to you and then they were coming back and they were listening again. Oh, wow. Okay. That's because I didn't make sense the first time, so they had to be clear the second time. No. Might be my accent. <laughs> I, th I think they understood you just fine. I think you just offered up a whole bunch of good stuff. Um, I, we got a lot of different things I want to talk about uh, in this podcast, but you mentioned something we were talking on the phone the other day that I kind of want to kick this off because it's so relevant to our audience. But you're, you're down in Georgia, you know, for the 
people who maybe haven't listened to the first one, you spend your summers in North Dakota and the winters down in Georgia, um, which is a really, really good plan. It's better than staying in, in the North country. Yeah. Uh, but you, like you said something that you're working on, you're working with some puppies down there on those quail and uh, they're, they're like six month old dogs. And Just turned you, six months old. Yeah. And you, and you said you pulled them you're, or you're pulling them back off of some birds. And I thought that was super interesting. So what did you mean by that? Well, I started, I introduced these dogs to birds. I mean, by eight weeks of age, they'd already been introduced to quail, pen raised birds out of a Johnny house. Then they were also in North Dakota for a brief period, you know, last summer before we came back to Georgia. So they had had some contact with wild birds, chased them, flashpointed them, chased them, no manners. Then we got down here and we started putting a, a handle on him. We're running him off horseback, which we do with all dogs, whether they're going to be a walking dog or a horseback dog later. During that early stage, we're running them off of horseback so we can see them and keep them in front. So we've got access to a friend, client of mine that has a wild bird plantation, private, and we run out there. So the dogs now have had a bunch of wild birds. They're running the way I want them to run. They don't have a handle. Okay. They're not, you know, in control. But they're sort of going with us. They're going to come back to the horse trailer with us at the end of a run. But I can't tell what they're doing on birds anymore with the cover. So they'll flash point. They're going to take them out and chase them. They're both very birdy. They're very high profile genetics. One's out of tried and true, three times all age dog of the year. And the other one's out of bolt, our three times dog of the year. So the genetics are solid. Um, they're you know, they're intense on their birds, but more birds is not going to get us there because they're just going to start running more out of control, have more, you know, the point will deteriorate. It won't increase because chasing so much fun. So it's time to get them off of birds. That's been accomplished. Okay. And you can't really get your patterning. I call it 10 to two. I want a dog running in 10 to two in front of me. Um, no matter whether it's a walking dog or it's a horseback dog, that's a pretty good pattern for a hunting dog to be 10 to two. So he's not coming up from behind us or so forth. That next stage won't happen until I get back to North Dakota because we're in the prairies there. I can't see the dog the whole time in the piney woods down here. Um, you can't get your patterning done to a professional standard. Okay. Um, so that will happen when we get back to North Dakota in, in June timeframe. So right now they don't need more birds. I certainly am not giving them any pen raised birds and haven't for quite some time because I don't want them to catch any. Um, and they've had birds out there and they're hunting aggressively, hunting hard, hunting lashy. So right now it's sort of a limbo time. It's, I wish I was in South Dakota next week. So that gives us a little hiatus. I mean, we're not going to let them um, sit there and vegetate and not do anything, but more wild birds would be counterproductive to completing the process of developing a bragging rights gun dog or bragging rights field trial dog. So we'll concentrate on some yard work, but still they're young. They're six months of age. So there's no badge of honor, in my opinion, to have the youngest dog ever trained. So just goes by steps, benchmarks. When you get an A in first grade, then you get to move to second grade. So we'll do stuff to keep them mentally astute. You know, we'll do some fun games of, of teaching them stuff. I think the more they learn, even if it doesn't seem that it's pertinent to a gun dog, the easier, easier it is to learn the next thing. So that would sort of be their script from now. Uh, some clicker stuff, you know, we'll do. I'm not going to do any bird manners. I'm not trying to get them to hold point. I'm not doing check cord work on pigeons. They're just not at the right age for that to have, uh, because your objective is to create style. And I think if you put too much pressure on early, then I think you lose some of that style. Well, so this, this goes, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but this kind of goes against what we hear a lot of people talk about when they talk about 
uh, you know, really, really building that bird fire in a dog and, and exposing them to tons and tons of birds, you know, as, as young as you can get away with it to, to establish that bird dog. You're, you're saying with these dogs that you got them the exposure level you wanted to, got the excitement up, but you didn't want to, because you can't see them in the pine woods, you can't kind of finish them off on the, on the bird work you, you, the way you'd want to. So you're pulling back and you're waiting for you, the chance to see them up on the prairie. Is that what you meant by that? Well, that, okay, but also adding in, you know, it would take pressure at this point in order to get bird manners, wouldn't it? I mean, there's going to have to be some corrections. I don't care whether somebody's got a lab, a springer, or a cock, or a pointer, okay? Um, you know, and these two pups we're talking about, I mean, both of their parents being in the Hall of Fame when they die. I mean, they've got a history of Hall of Fame. So we had genetics. It doesn't take very many birds, for the dog to go, wow, that's a bird, okay? And, you know, I'm off to the races. So more birds, you get your creeping in a pointing dog. You get your creeping, you know, and your dog's not going to hold point and chasing so much fun. So if that chasing is like robbing the bank and getting a million dollars, it's going to take a big penalty later to get them to not want to chase, and that penalty can create a lack of style. So to try to get something done in a week, Okay, put the pressure on them, make them stand there, which you could do, but you're just not going to end up the style that you'd like to see. The dog's just not going to look as pretty and as enthusiastic about doing it. So I'm not of the school, let's get our dog holding point by the time he's eight months of age. Um, Let's get him through the first grade, the second grade, the third grade, and let's graduate with honors. Uh, And so I, I don't think that early pressure and early obedience there's a place for it and we'll talk about that a little bit later in our in our podcast but i think that takes away because if the kid's getting mugged when he goes to school it's pretty hard for him to concentrate on algebra class so i think that early pressure badge of honor and when you alluded to you know people saying and i don't mean this in a pompous way but we got sort of two philosophies we got the professional old school the guys who went at the national level and dog of the year and then we got the old school of the weekend warrior that the mentors of people that they're hanging around with. Okay. And, and that'd be fun. And like the other day when we were talking, some of the groups, what are you doing today is training day. What are you doing? We're putting some birds out. What are you training? Well, we're putting birds out. We're going to kill some birds. And I'm talking particularly with, with pointing breeds right now. And then next week's the same thing. What are you training? Well, we're going to put some birds out. Well, were you stopping the creeping? Were you making it the dog chase more? So you'd have to put more pressure on him later not to chase uh, it might be fun to put the birds out and it might be fun to shoot them, but it's not what the guys who are doing and I'm talking pointing breeds here, not so much the retrieving breeds. It's not what the guys who are winning at the national level, dog of the year, national invitational, national championship. That's not the script for those dogs. Okay. Um, the other thing I think that's entirely different, uh, in the credential community of national placements. Okay. Is there's no retrieving with your pointing dogs. Okay. You're getting the dog to hold point. You stayed a wing and shot. And we're going to do the same thing. Even if a dog is slated to be a gun dog for a discerning client down the road, we're not doing our retrieving until the dog has bird manners because it's so much fun to leave. So if he gets a million dollar paycheck for leaving, and then the person ends up putting pressure, yelling, screaming, jerking his head off. Uh, and it just doesn't work. You know, one of the things that say there was a rattlesnake there and somebody had the dog on a check cord, what would you do? You'd pull him, right? And so now we got a bird down there and we got the dog on a check cord and you're going to jerk his head and pull him back and you think you're going to get style on a bird when that's the same way you'd de-snake the dog? It just doesn't make common sense to me. So I, I like to sort of go through it with more repetitions rather than more pressure. Yeah, and, and what you're saying then is you know – 
without question, if you kept going down that road with those dogs and they were still in recess and having fun, you, you would have to correct them in a way that you don't want to at their age and that exposure level. And you're just, you're hitting the brakes and going, we're going to come back around to this when they're at the age to handle those corrections. And I, and I want this next step, but you're not, you're, you're doing something that's very hard for an awful lot of bird dog owners to do, which you kind of alluded to, which is, uh, the, the fun part of, of letting the birds go and letting the dog work the birds, that that's partially for us. And you're saying, that's not about me. That's, this is about the dog. And even if I might enjoy that, it's not good for my dogs. So I'm taking them away from it and we're going to revisit it. Well, that's well said. And, and also it might be a whole bunch, but let's say the dog's six months of age, you know, I mean, clones are the ones I'm talking about here. So the person goes out and, you know, guy, gal, whatever their dog, they put, you know, pin raised birds out. It's inevitable these dogs are going to catch some. It's inevitable. Okay. Whether they were flushing, they ran them down or they jumped in on point and caught them. So if the dog is catching birds, why would he want to hold point? <laughs> okay. So that means you're going to have to put more pressure on him. So with people who come to our schools say, well, you know, I want to do this and he needs birds to get birdie. Well, hopefully you get the genetics to start with that the dog was going to be birdie, you know, and he didn't need many birds to say, I like this. Right. So now they have that fun at six months of age or eight months of age. And then they spend years trying to fix it. That's not fun. Why not get the foundation down and then have fun for the next 10 years without pulling your hair out and yelling and screaming at the dog and beating him up and losing style. And, you know, that's, that's not a good formula to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you bring up a question to me that I've, I've just never heard anybody address. You know, you're talking about working on quail and how the dogs will eventually catch some. Is there any danger with that, with pointing breeds and working pen raised pheasants? Cause I've, I've, I've never, I've done some photography around that and I've seen dogs catch those birds too. Is there, is there any issue there with, with people running pointers on pen raised pheasants? I think that there's a risk of running young dogs in the pointing breeds. Well, we'll talk about the flushing retrieving breeds later. A little, little different. Okay. The, but with the pointing breeds, every bird they catch is a step away from holding point. And what that does is it's going to dictate to the owner if he wants to get bird manners, whether it's stay to wing and shot or just simply hold point. He's going to have to put more pressure on the dog. Every dog's not going to take more pressure. Why design a program that's guaranteed to put more pressure? Design a pro- There's going to have to be corrections. But let's design a program that means less corrections than more corrections. And so those caught birds are bad. Now, you know, in my career, I've heard lots of people, you know, whether it's at the bar, the hunt club, whatever. Okay. You know, you're out in whatever, Montana, and you've stopped and have your steak and your beer, and there's some other guys there, and they're talking. And one of the things, and I'm sure you have it in yours, that that comes with a package is you get to be educated by people who go tell you how to do it. Okay. So when you're sitting there at the, you know, at the bar, having your beer at the end of the day, whatever it is, and the guys are, you know, are talking about, um, they've got this finished dog at eight months of age or 10 months of age. Well, they don't, maybe they thought it was, but they don't. Okay. Uh, in your lab and you take whether, you know, whoever it is. Okay. The guys you worked with from, any form or all the way through whoever they might be you know they're going to have a different philosophy of how to get that dog to be reliable so they do it and it's duck blind or it's an upwind lab or springer to be reliable so if you got to keep putting corrections on the dog that's not something that you should get angry at the dog at he's given you information 
It says, I'm not trained yet. You haven't completed school yet. So when the dog says, oh, he didn't do that. Now I'm going to yell and scream at him, jerk his ear, whatever it is. Just look at it as information. The dog gave you information that said, hello, Mr. Trainer. You haven't finished me. Don't beat me up because you haven't finished me. Okay. Finish me. Do it. Do it correctly. Right. Got this bolt dog. Okay. That we got three times dog of the year. He's the winningest dog in the history of field trials. So he's a truly pretty special animal. We're proud of him. He runs a lot of wild bird trials, but he certainly has run pen raised bird trials too, where there's been released quail. He's supposed to hold those birds the same as wild birds. So you'll hear a guy say, oh, you can't run pointing dogs on pheasants. Well, that's just not true. We train all summer, okay, on pheasants. Sean Kinkler, I don't know, he's won nine or ten national championships, trains on pheasants, okay. Doug Ray, there's a bunch of them. Tommy Rice, it's not the pheasant, it's the training process. Why, why did people make that argument against the pheasants? Because, and, I, and I'll probably have some of your viewers, some of your listeners want to send me a voodoo doll or something, but... It's because the dog wasn't trained. Uh, so they blame it on the pheasant. The pheasant was running. So how can you expect my dog to hold point on a running bird? Because you didn't train it. Okay. I mean, you have national pheasant championships for pointing breeds and the dogs are supposed to point them. Um, so if he's if he's trained, okay, what do, you want to be able to hunt a pheasant, a chucker, a quail, a scale, a merns. Now, my pointers are not very good at sea duck hunting, and I'm going to have to pass that over to you lab guys on that one. Okay. <laughs> the uh, No, I think that's the reason they just didn't take the training to the next level. And I think it's also why the guy that you were interviewing from South Dakota the other day was a, you know, I thought very good interview. Um, you know, and why there's so many labs out there. The reality, and I had labs for a long time and some very high profile labs, right? Okay, it's just a different world now. So those dogs, as long as they hunt in range, they don't have to be, they don't have to sit on the flush, do they? They don't have to be steady and shot. Mine work. I mean, I ran Springer trials for years at some national high point Springers. They got to be steady to wing and shot. Okay? But if the dog just hunts close, finds them, flushes them, you got the world's best dog, don't you? Well, that's easier than to get a pointing dog to stand there and hold point because he doesn't want to hold point. He wants to destroy nest. He wants to grab the bird. So you've got, it's a more volatile situation to get a dog that's close to the scent because he's close to the scent. The scent's in front of his nose. And if you're putting pressure on him, it's much more likely that dog says, oh, this is because I'm close to the bird. And he's got a way to solve that. It's called blinking. Purposely leave the bird. So your timing with the pointing dog on game to get good manners, I think, takes a little bit more knowledge. Now, when you take your, your Springer guy, your lab guy, Chessie, whatever, when he's moving his dog to the upper levels, well, it's sure, same thing. His timing of administering corrections, rewards, and everything is going to be the same. You take, like, your lab, if you want to teach it to sit down on the flush, that's fairly volatile. Because it's a hop, skip, and a jump away from creating a pointing lab versus a flushing lab that sits down on the flush, right? You know, so different strokes, different folks. Uh, the higher your standard is, it doesn't take more time. It just means it's got to be right in stages and benchmarks. Um, it doesn't take more time to do it right. Okay, it takes more time to fix than it ever does to do it right, in my opinion. For sure. Um, you, you've, you brought up a couple different breeds that you've worked with and you've taken to pretty high levels. Have you gone, you know, I, I realize this is probably partly uh, due to regionality where you've been living at different times and where you've been hunting, but have you just gone through phases in your career where you're like, 
I'm kind of a lab guy now and I like working with these dogs, but you see these springers and you swing over there and then all of a sudden it feels like you've, you've moved through some different breeds. Is, is there like a, did you have any plan for that? Was there any reason for that? Or was it just kind of what came along and where you lived? No, it's, it, it was a developing reason. It wasn't a thought out thing back when I was 17 years old and said, I'm going to have dogs. I used to do a lot of guiding for pheasants. Okay. And I took clients, uh, without their dogs at that point. Uh, and I did a lot, you know, South Dakota. Okay. And, uh, so I could use the same dog that I was running in spaniel trials. Okay. Like your, your guy you interviewed the other day said one of the best pheasant dogs he's ever seen was that little Springer. And that was a field trial reject. Well, the ones that aren't field trial rejects, they're even more deadly on pheasants. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I think that Springer field Springer, not show Springer, that's trained that you can stop on running birds, does blind retrieves, sits down on the flush, waits for his name to be called to be sent for a retrieve. All of that package makes him a pheasant guru, right? And he's and he's normally got probably a little bit more speed than most labs, okay? And I had labs. the Because I could walk a lab at heel, run pointers or setters, okay, then send my lab in to do the flushing, but my lab sat down on the flush and the pointer stayed there. So the pointers or setters, they never retrieved. So they never thought they were going to retrieve. And then we were doing the quail hunts in George off a wagon. And the lab's personality was he would sit on that wagon waiting for his name to be called to come in and flush or retrieve, you know, the birds. So we were using both of them during that period of time, otherwise running springer trials. But then my hunting changed. Uh, part of it changed because tax laws changed. There was less corporate hunts. So the books weren't sending a bunch of clients, okay, to do it. Tax laws changed. So now you're dealing with the individual at the same time that my schools were going in full force at that portion. So I met bunches of people who had a dog that had gone to school, that had trained the dog to a more advanced level, and they were going on the hunts. So I no longer was doing hunts to, you know, five guys I didn't know that had called me and said, we want to come out and shoot X amount of birds. Okay, that's not the people I'm taking today. The people that go on our hunts, whether it's down here in Georgia, um, you know, the quail hunts here, which are all wild quail, or in North Dakota, pheasants hunt sharp tails. They're all people who, you know, stay with me and work with me. I'm not running my dogs at that point for them. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So it was never like a situation where you were sitting there going, I just kind of want to challenge myself with this kind of dog or see what the experience is with this breed. No, I, well, maybe a little bit with pointers. I had setters before that, uh, but I lived in Pennsylvania where my office is, but I think as I've said to you, I've been in my office three times in nine years now. That's why I have an office. So I'm not in Pennsylvania. I lived in New Hampshire at that time. And I did a lot of, a lot of hunting out in your neck of the woods. I did a lot of grouse hunting, woodcock hunting. Um, and you know, and I had setters, um, and I didn't find my springers or my labs to be the right dog for that particular thing. Okay. You know, the pointer game and the money game or the field trial money game for the all age and the, and the all age and the open shooting dog is pretty much pointer dominated. And it's because of the stamina and the athletic ability that it's different. Okay. So, yeah, there was a thing that, uh, you know, let me play with a couple of pointers. And then I, you know, had a couple of relationships. I had a couple of guys when Bob Whaley, L. Hugh Kennels was, you know, alive that gave me to work with for a while. And, you know, I really liked them. And then the horseback dog steak is 
that's just great. I mean, I, you know, I love that. I love sitting on a horse, riding in the prairies and watching dogs cruise the countryside, you know, and wild birds. So it became a personal, geez, I like this. And I wasn't living in, and I wasn't in Phillips anymore in Wisconsin, you know, Mille Lacs anymore. So I didn't need a grouse dog. So if somebody's calling me to train a grouse dog today, I tell them I'm not the right guy. You know, I don't live in that country anymore. Okay. Um, so if you want to make a grouse dog, you got to be in the grouse woods. You know, and I don't have grouse woods here in Georgia. And I don't have them in the prairies of North Dakota. You know, it's a far cry away from tree to tree. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for sure. Okay. They, they all, and I mean this, it's not a placebo. Any bird dog, I don't care what the breed is. We had a, a Brittany during the summer from Trinity Kennels, okay, moose. I don't have Britneys, okay? It's hard to see a short-tailed dog in the piney woods standing there without the, the high tail. But did that mean I was not impressed with the dog? I was impressed with him. thought he was a great one. You know, I've seen some wire here, some, some great poodle pointers, okay? So I'm not breed-specific that this dog is, I think they all have some advantages over the other. They might have some detriments. Like I said, my pointers are terrible going sea duck hunting. You know, but you can shoot pheasants with your lab and go see duck hunting too. Okay. The, so any good dog is truly a good dog. And I, and I guess that's what's kept me in schools, helping people there and looking at them. And, you know, I don't go, oh no, man, this is, it's not a pointer. Okay. I, I don't believe that. And, and I do believe, passionately believe that the only difference between your field trial dog and your gun dog is he's just on public display at a field trial that day. You know, your gun dog is the one he's got to, he's got to make retrieves that they're never asking a dog to make at the, at a trial. Um, so, I mean, it's the real deal. So, I mean, a world-class gun dog is world-class, you know, and people should be proud of them. There are breeds that I certainly believe are easier to train than other breeds. I think some breeds are easier to train for the novice, okay, than other breeds might be. Um, but you know, we, you and I, we've said this anytime we've ever talked genetic, genetic, genetics. If you don't have the genetics, it's an uphill battle. In your opinion, what's the, what's the easiest dog to train for the novice? Flushing, retrieving breeds or across the board? Uh, across the board. Oh, I got to say, you know, probably the lab, the well-bred lab, because they, if they aren't going to train to be state away and shot, stop him on running birds. So if he's tracking a bird, they can blow the whistle and he sits down and they don't do all the... Uh, more advanced portions of the training and they're in a bird rich environment and the dog just, you know, patterns within gun range and will bring it back to you fit for table fare. They had a great Saturday, you know, they had a great hunt. So I think he's easier. Um, so I, I'd have to say to somebody, depending on what you hunt, if you're hunting grouse where you are, I think the lab is a, a harder dog than a pointing breed would be. Okay. But if you're going to hunt pheasants and you're going to hunt ducks, you know, the argument that I would have, somebody says, okay, I don't want a pointing breed. I want a flushing retrieving breed. It would be the field bred Springer and the Labrador retriever. That Springer will retrieve ducks for you, but he's not going to do it all day long. It's going to be too cold for him because his hair is not hollow. It's going to absorb and he's going to get wet, right? Can he go retrieve all the wood ducks down in Georgia? Of course. You know, he's, he's not dealing in your type of temperature. Um, so if somebody mostly hunted pheasants, and did some occasional warm water duck hunting, I'd say, hey, look hard at a Springer Spaniel, field bred Springer, okay? If you do some duck hunting and you got some cold water and, you know, it's got to break some ice to go get it, and you also do pheasant hunting, boy, the lab's really tough to beat. Now, that doesn't mean there's not great chessies and, you know, but if you said, what's the best odds? 
I think those two breeds within the, the breeds do it. In your pointing breeds, um, I'm prejudiced about pointers. I think they're the easiest to train because they start pointing in the womb. They're more forgiving of the mistakes that you may make than some of the other breeds. But that doesn't mean there's not Brittany's just nailing it. Okay. And poodle pointers and short hairs. There's great short hairs out there. Right. But if you ask me which one's the easiest, um, going through our program for the year, we pull our hair out much less with a pointer than we do with a lot of other breeds. Okay. But, you know, we certainly want genetics across the board. Okay. So if a dog, you know, it's not forgiving or it's an apprehensive dog by nature, it's a difficult dog to train. If he's looking for something to be wrong, he finds it, okay? And, and you know, that that's a more difficult dog. So I like that well-rounded, I own the world, I'm happy, go lucky, let's, you know, let's go shoot some pool and have a good time, and what are we going to learn today? That's sort of the perfect formula for me with a dog. You know, happy about it, like learning, okay, with an upbeat attitude. I don't want to go to work every day in my office, which is outside, with a dog that I got to go, I got to squeeze his ear today and again tomorrow and next week and next, but that's not fun. Okay. So I'd rather have a dog who says, let's learn. What are you showing me to do? Okay. Help me here. Guide me. And I'll step up to the plate, man, and I'll make you proud. That's my type of dog. Yeah. So you've, you've mentioned a bunch of different breeds and one that I've been, I've been looking for somebody to ask about is a poodle pointer. I had, I had a listener reach out to me and and mentioned that he was looking at them and he was kind of looking for some advice and I'm like I don't <laughs> I don't know anything about him. I met a really nice poodle pointer when I was woodcock hunting once here in Minnesota and that's about the depth of my knowledge. <laughs> uh what what do you like about them? What, what what is it about that breed? The ones I'm seeing at our schools, okay, and I I could say this pretty much as a, across the board now in the last number of years. They've all had point, okay? So any of the German breeds, I don't say this critically, I say it factually, any of the German breeds, you know, are going to be a little bit more tougher on game because of their genetic background, had to track out stags or whatever. So they can be a more aggressive dog. And as a result, maybe back then didn't have as much point as the English pointer, I said, that starts pointing in the womb. Okay. And I do think a dog that has more point makes it easier for the novice to get to where they want to get to the poodle pointers that i'm saying have point okay they've been forgiving without going to war you don't have to put on your armor and you know carry a big sword and say okay we're going to battle today you know so i don't feel i've got to be david slaying goliath when i'm working with them um i do think which i think is true with most breeds or all breeds but i do think the earlier you start with them i think the better it is i think the one of the worst things with any of those breeds that have you know, a toughness to them. Um, and they had to, to be able to do what they were genetically bred to do. Uh, they had to be a tougher dog. They couldn't be a wimp, okay, to do that. I mean, they're going to fight a wild boar. I mean, no, it's got to be, you know, have some guts to it. I think that letting them get away with stuff early. Now, I'm not preaching walking around with a, you know, baseball bat and a, you know, cat of nine tails and be beating up on them all the time. But I, I do think there's some some sins that we're going to cover, I believe, a little bit later that I think are, no matter what somebody wants to do, um, are in the way for getting there. But I think there's certain breeds, Chessies. They're a tougher dog. I love Chessies. I think they're a great dog, but they're not for everybody. And they're certainly not for somebody who's not going to put early accountability and let the Chessie decide that he owns the world. Okay. Um, I think, as you know, I do some work with special forces canines to get deployed, you know, Malinois for almost all of them. 
you know, and a Malinois is a really great dog. I'm not even talking about the war and finding IEDs or getting the bad guy or whatever. But, you know, I've had them that are in my house. They're great. But I tell anybody, hey, if you're going to be just never enforcing something and just saying you can do whatever you want. And now I'm going to try to make you do it. It's probably the wrong dog for you, you know, because he's, you know, dogs were bred or, you know, genetically not bred fight, flight, fakery or they're sort of three escape hatches. If they got a problem, we can run away from it. We can fight or we'll pull that poor woe me and I don't like it. And you don't have to do it. That last one's more domestically made, evolved with people. Oh, I feel sorry for him. So he doesn't have to do it because it never worked in the wild. So if he did that, he was in the eagle's nest, wasn't he? Okay. <laughs> so, you know, that fight and fakery, uh, fight, flight, fakery, those escape hatches is a deck of cards that mother nature dealt that dog. And if you allow those to work, with those tougher breeds, it's pretty hard to unlearn them for what they learned. They genetically were predispositioned to do it. Then they learned it worked. And now you're going to say, no, it doesn't work anymore. You might be in a battle that you don't want to be in. Yeah. What I, what I keep hearing from you is kind of this undercurrent of when you're talking about what, what's the most trainable dog for a novice and, and you and you kind of break down these breeds is, uh, it's it's on our end, and by our, I mean me and all, the rest of the amateur handlers out here, to be really honest about what what we can do with a dog. And, and so what you're saying there, that Belgian mouth thing comes up all the time on here, and people are very careful talking about them because they don't want to push anyone into a Belgian mouth because they know what they're getting into. But it extends... Uh, it, maybe there, Maybe I'm saying this wrong, but it sort of feels like there's a false belief that if you go get... Most gun dog breeds, whatever you choose, I don't care, that they kind of all fall into the same trainability, you know, box, but they really don't. So even you have to even break that down further as far as like, I'm going to hunt A, B, and C with this. It's going to live in the house. It's going to do this. But also I'm, I've only trained two dogs in my life. I've only trained four dogs in my life and they've all been, (laughs) I loved them, but they were okay or whatever. It really taking into account Mm -hmm. what the dog brings to the table and what we bring to the table for the dog. I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, no question. Okay. You know, and it, if somebody's buying a dog because they like the way it looks and it's pretty and that's what they like, that's fine. It's their decision, but I think they should have all the information. How is a dog going to train? So somebody, you know, buys a dog because, well, my great grandfather had that type of dog and that's what I'm going to get today. You know, that's great. That, that, you know, nostalgia is what the thing is. If you want a dog that's going to make you make your training more fun and easier and your hunting more successful, there's certain breeds that you're going to be more successful with and certain lines within that breed. You know, when you go, you know, to the the upper end field trial world, the genetics are going to be top, top shelf from both mom, dad, grandfather, grandfather. I mean, you're looking at all these Hall of Fame dogs. The reason these dogs do so well in the training isn't just because of their physical attributes, their stamina. They prove and they can be trained and have level heads. So they accept training very, very well. Uh, and I think that would be the same thing if you were talking to your buddy Dawkins or Mike Lardy or whoever says, you know, there's certain dogs that what's up here in their head is going to also dictate, you know, how well they train. But if they just don't have a drive for birds, he might be great in the house. You know, kids might like him. Next door neighbors at the barbecue think he's pretty. Okay, <laughs> You know, everybody wants to see some birds and pull the trigger, you know. Um, but everybody's got their prejudices, you know. I mean, I'm in the performance end. A pointer is just metabolically different. That's not a prejudice on my part. That's just a fact. He's metabolically different. He processes 
glycogen and fats differently. Um, it's why the sled dog guys, so many of them that do the sled dog circuits, bred English pointer into them and some short, and some short hairs um, because of that stamina. So it's different. You know, it's there. Um, he's not going to overheat the way maybe a Brittany would. Okay, with the hair, you know. So, but that didn't mean he's a better dog for Joe Jones. You know, um, you know. So it's whatever it is. I'm going to be, you know, very prejudiced about genetics on a dog. You've got this dog bone, winning his dog in the history of the game. Does that mean that every puppy he's going to throw is going to beat his record? Or, you know, the odds are no. Okay. You know, Secretariat didn't throw any horses that beat Secretariat, right? But it's a great place to start. Dogs that don't have that genetics, it, it's just a real uphill battle. Okay. No matter how good a trainer you are, um, you know it. You've been around a long time. You hear that old phrase genetics, training, nutrition. Okay, if you've got the best genetics there ever are and you, you know, feed them great food, but you're a terrible trainer, well, you're not going to have a very good dog. Okay, if you've got, you're the best trainer that's ever lived and you feed Arena Pro Plan Sport, okay, and you have no genetics, you know, it's probably not where you want to spend your Saturday afternoon hunting with a guy looking for a bird. (laughs) One thing you said, George, that I want to touch on a little bit, you you mentioned, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of talking about these prejudices we have with different dog breeds. And, you know, my grandpa had Springer, so I'm going to have Springer's the rest of my life. I'm I'm dealing with that with a buddy of mine right now who's – he grew up with golden retrievers. So he's always gotten golden retrievers. And the, the last one he got was a uh, – she's a real nice little field-bred golden. Uh, but he, in his life, has gone from hunting almost exclusively pheasants to then woodcock and grouse to now mostly ducks – but he he's kept golden retrievers through the whole thing, and his goldens don't like his. They've never liked duck hunting very much. And I know guys get goldens out there, and they have awesome duck hunting dogs with them. He has not had that kind of luck, and so he's fighting this 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 mentality. Like I've always had goldens; they're my favorite dogs. But now in his stage of life, where he's got these little boys who like to duck hunt, and he likes to duck hunt, and the best bird hunting opportunity he has is sitting on the edge of the water. He's kind of like fighting that prejudice, going. I know I should probably get a lab or I should get something that's I know is probably going to be a little easier for me with ducks, but he doesn't want to because of his history with Goldens. It's you see that a lot. Yeah, you don't see it in the money world, obviously. Okay. <laughs> you know, True. when you're well, you know. I mean, if you're running field trials for and you're paying your bills from it, okay. So I don't mean, you know, just the blue ribbon. I mean it's a cash purse, right? So the nationals is next week. I mean, that's a twenty thousand dollar purse. Your prejudices go away about what your grandfather used to have. Okay, you know, what is going to win? If you're going to Indianapolis 500, you want a car that's going to, you know, win at it, right? So, you know, somebody shoots what type of shotgun, and maybe they are prejudiced about it because that's what their grandfather shot. That's great. That's fine, you know? But with the dog, my feeling is why make it harder for yourself? You get X amount of days to enjoy this, and hopefully the training is also fun, not just the going hunting. So the complete package is adding to your rocking chair years and your memories, right? So, you know, and with the, you know, the golden, uh, you may decide that you don't want this on. I don't know. I did an article a number of years ago for Shooting Sportsman on Staff Writer Forum. Uh, they'd asked me to write an article on my favorite breeds. Exactly the type of article I did not want to write because I do schools, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. But anyway, I, I did. And so I got to the retrievers and I said, you know, all said and done, just be done with it. You know, get a lab going to do everything you want to do look at the stats what wins the nationals what 
goes hunting, what finds pheasants in South Dakota, just just be done with it, right? And I gave my compliments to the Springer, which I firmly believe, but I had to do Goldens um, because they were a popular breed. And particularly on the East Coast, there were more Goldens, you know, Connecticut's maybe and, you know, whatever, Vermont. So I did some research and stuff, and I'd seen some at schools, and frankly, I hadn't liked them. And I felt if I was going to get bit, I was more likely to get bit by a Golden than I was a wire hair. Okay. So I started doing some research on it. And the Golden at that time, uh, I wrote the thing, you know, it has a, one of the top dogs to most likely bite unprovoked statistically. Okay. They also have a high propensity of getting cancer at a very early age. So my argument was why buy a dog that maybe is going to bite the grandson that you didn't see, you know, granddaughter. And the odds are so high that it's going to have cancer by the time it's three years of age. It's not a dog I recommend. So that doesn't mean all Goldens are like that, but it's certainly a piece of information I would want to know when I research my breeder if my heart was set on I got to get a Golden. Okay. Um, you know, and I think that's true. You know, the, uh, you know, when they say second most likely to bite unprovoked, I mean, that's quite a statement. They didn't put males there. <laughs> well, you know, the the one place that uh, that statistic with the Goldens comes up a lot that you see, and I'm sure you've seen this. I, I actually got asked to write an article about dog bites one time, and I, I started digging into it, and I said, I'm not going <laughs> to. I've, I've gotten enough hate mail in my life. But do you know where it comes up is the the pit bull crowd brings that up a lot. Because they'll say golden retrievers are far more likely to bite somebody than a uh, a pit bull, which like statistically is true, but doesn't make a pit bull bite you know less dangerous. You know, it's a it's like a false equivalency. You know, they'll say, well, these nice dogs that you guys have loved have been on sitcoms for forty years; they're more likely to bite you. And I'm like, yeah, I'll take a I'll take a golden retriever bite over a pit bull bite any day. Like it doesn't make it right, but you, that's that's where you hear that statistic a lot. Let's. Uh, Let's switch some. Let's switch gears here a little bit. I wanted to ask you, uh, what what should people be doing? We, we're coming out of even if you're even if you're way down south in your neck of the woods, or you're down in Arizona, maybe hunting some quail or something. We're coming to the end of the the seasons for for upland. We're getting into the 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 off season. Like this is a time where people are like, okay, you know, hunting's over. I should maybe start thinking about getting a pup or I'm going to get a pup, or I should just be thinking about some training stuff. What do you advise people in the off season to make sure like you, you alluded to this right away at the, the beginning of this conversation about those puppies, like keeping them thinking, keeping them learning, keeping them working. What do you, what do you tell people in the off season to keep their dogs sharp? Well, one of the first thing I teach them or tell them, okay, is do not change your diet. Change the amount of food. We feed Pro Plan Sport, okay? Um, there's a lot of guys on the circuit are. The, uh, so if our dog is coming off the field trial circuit or hunting season's over, there's going to be a little R&R. Uh, it's not long for us, and I'll get to that later during you know, off-season training. But we're not going to change the diet and give him an inferior diet or give him, oh, he doesn't need the same proteins and fats. No, he needs a quality diet. He just needs less of it. Okay, so if he's not roading or running 20 miles a day or whatever it is, he doesn't need as many calories to sustain his weight, you know, assuming you're not in real cold weather with an outside dog. So I tell him, don't change your thing. You know, muscle atrophy starts very quickly in a dog. Um, keep him on a solid diet, quality diet, 
the athlete doesn't eat potato chips until he goes back to football camp, you know. So I think there's there's two folds to it. You got your you got your health issue. Let me come back to exercise at the end of it. Okay, there. I'm a huge I'm a clicker trainer. We you know whether I'm developing a mouth for special forces for whatever one of your elite branches, working with them or it's a bird dog. Okay, we clicker train and we and we start that way. I don't think there's any downside to clicker training. I think there's huge benefits to it. But they could somebody could be using that clicker training and do an agility course. The dog is learning to learn. It's having fun. It's mentally there. So he's not just getting stagnant by sitting around doing nothing. Mentally, not just, you know, physically. Right? So, you know, involve a clicker with some obedience training with some uh, agility training. You know, set up some jumps in the backyard. Get, you know, it's fun. Okay, and it keeps the dog active and doing something and learning to learn. Okay? So I think that's, you know, an important thing with it. Uh, obedience training, but making it fun. Okay, uh, revisit your yard stuff. Okay, that's uh, there. I mean, if you're using a clicker, you can get your obedience training done, and it's fun for both you and the dog. All right. If you had problems with the e-collar during the hunting season because either the dog got case-hardened and turned it off or was shut down because you used it, then he wasn't prepared with it right. Go back and revisit the steps of how to properly get a dog to avoidance training. The avoidance training means that he learned to avoid a correction by doing the behavior you wanted, right? Yeah. When you say all of that stuff, do you think uh, what this kind of reminds me of is in in, in my other life in the, the bow hunting big game world, one of the things I see all the time is uh, people want to go on an elk hunt. And so you take somebody from Minnesota or Pennsylvania or wherever, they want to go Colorado, Idaho, and they want to elk hunt. And they know they should be training year round, doing some cardio, lifting some weights, whatever, all year round to be ready for that. But what you see a lot of times is people go, I'll I'll start, you know, after St. Patrick's Day or I'll start after Easter. And then it's like, well, I'll start after the 4th of July. And there's a very common phenomenon that happens where they either, you know, you show up, guys show up and they're not in shape, which happens a lot, or they show up injured because they go man my i'm starting elk hunt in six weeks i need to start running and lifting and then they overdo it and they don't pace that out through the year to just just have a nice base maintain is that it does that sound like what a lot of people do with dogs where they look like okay this is the off season we don't need to think about this too much we'll we'll get after it sometime later in the year and then later in the year comes later in the year comes and all of a sudden you're staring down july and august and you know you're going to be hunting prairie chickens in a month and then you you try to cram in a bunch of work a little bit too late. You know, if the dog's not obese, okay, it's going to take roughly about six weeks to get him in good shape. It's easier to keep him in some sort of reasonable shape during the whole season. Now, if somebody has, you know, lives in a place where they can have a four-wheeler and they can attach the dog to the roading harness to roading bars and four-wheeler, you know, even if they're only doing 20, 25 minutes. I mean, we might be doing an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes, but they, they don't have to do that. Um, that's a great way. If they don't have that, get a, uh, you know, get a roading harness and put some welder's cable on the side of it. Okay, no, weigh 10, 12 pounds and then send him for some retrieves if the dog retrieves. Not in the water. It's not good in the water. <laughs> okay. Uh, so now he's getting some resistance training for his muscles and he's getting some aerobic training, you know, at the same time. So they can get, you know, creative. Um, I saw a woman today when I was coming back from where I was and the, she was on her bicycle and she had a dog on a, a lead with it and she was riding her bicycle 
she was probably going, I don't know, four miles an hour on a bicycle. You know, that's not enough. I don't care if she stayed out for an hour. That's just not enough for the dog. Right. Um, and I don't mean they got to go sell their soul to, you know, a conditioning program. But, you know, just taking the dog for a walk after dinner. Nope. Isn't going to get any of a shape. Free running him is, is better than nothing. I just wouldn't want to free run him with his deer. And I got to be doing other things with training. We don't free run. And one of the things with free running, you're looking for, you know, to peak a dog. You can't push a dog past where he wants to go. So let's say you've got a dog that's a little overweight and he's out of shape and you say, I'm going to free run him. Well, if he gets a little tired and he's panting, he's going to walk. He's not going to push himself, you know. So like that's the thing about a treadmill, right? <laughs> you're getting tired, but the treadmill keeps going. Well, that's what, you know, that's what same thing happens when you're roading. So free running has its advantages. And if there's nothing, it's certainly better than nothing. But it's not the quickest way to get the dog in aerobic shape. And, and for most people, that's what they're looking for is the aerobics. Okay. You know, so the dog's got good, you know, heart conditioning. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And, and it's a big deal. Dog's going to live longer. He's going to be happier. And just mentally, they run better. They hunt better. They train better. They're happy. For sure. Uh, George, You've got uh, something in the works. We're not going to talk about yet, but we're going to talk about soon. <laughs> as soon as, as soon as you get it out there in the uh, the bird dog space, uh, why don't you let everybody know where they can find uh, you know your website if they want to they want to attend one of your schools, uh, just you know buy some DVDs from you, whatever. W- where can people find you? www.georgehickox.com. Okay, we'll have our school dates posted there. There's articles there. There's uh, um, great beginnings for starting young dogs. There's a library collection for finishing out older dogs. There's the, the lab portion. Our lab portion is all slated to upland dogs, not to waterfowl dogs. Uh, so go right through the website and get, get all that. That'll have dates for schools. Hopefully COVID will make that a little bit <laughs> easier for this coming year. Um, so, and then we do private clinics and one-on-one training. And uh, there's we go until our new thing that you and I are going to release. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, George. That's it for this episode of Sporting Dog Talk. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And of course, if you liked what you heard on this episode, please, please, please subscribe. That helps us out so much when we get to see the support from our audience. And lastly, 